psalm that we've uh, sung. Psalm number three, and let's read the, the psalm first of all, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And God will bless to us the reading of his word. One of the, one of the primary ways in which um, we identify at least some of the main ideas in any one portion of Scripture, whether Old Testament or New Testament, is to look out for, for words and phrases or it may be ideas or themes or pictures that are repeated throughout that particular passage. Uh, nowadays, of course, we have lots of different ways of highlighting uh, particular things. Uh, text on a, on a screen uh, like this, for example. Uh, we can use block capitals. Uh, we can put everything in bold or the main things in bold. Or we might use italics. Or we might underline uh, important words or, or phrases. Or we can even highlight them in a different color of pen, as it were, and so on. We have a whole multiplicity of ways of emphasizing things, of highlighting things, of uh, showing these things that are particularly important uh, in a text. In the ancient times, uh, particularly in the Old Testament times with the language which was Hebrew, uh, they didn't have those options. Uh, the one option that they did have was repetition. Uh, and that's always been, and in fact, uh, even today, repetition remains one of the ways in which we discover uh, what uh, a significant idea is in any particular text, not just of Scripture, but of, of any other bit of literature that, 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 we, uh, that we read. And as we consider this uh, psalm, or part of this psalm at least, we'll see that uh, the psalmist uses this technique of repetition to highlight for us some of the big themes, some of the main ideas that he is he wants us to grasp hold of, even if we don't get the whole picture. And I want you to notice that uh, one of the, the main themes throughout this psalm is uh, this, um, and we find it in the, near the beginning, we find it towards the end as well, is the, the idea of salvation. Salvation or deliverance, depending what translation of the Bible you actually have in your hands. 
Uh, we see the, the, the word, first of all, there in verse 2, where the psalmist cries out, there is no salvation. Or what he's doing is repeating what others are saying about him. Uh, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Uh, we see it again in verse 7. Uh, where the psalmist cries out, he's a man of prayer, even though there are lots of people who don't believe that he has uh, experienced salvation or that there's any possibility of salvation for him. He's a man of prayer, and here we see him engaged, as we do a lot in the middle of this psalm. He's engaged in prayer, and he's crying out to, to the Lord to save him. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. And then in the very last verse, he returns to this repeated theme when he says, salvation belongs to the Lord, or salvation is from the Lord. Now, we won't have time to, to look at uh, each of these uh, references to salvation in this psalm today, but uh, I want to pay particular attention to um, uh, the reference in verse 2. And what we find in these opening two verses of the psalm is a resounding denial of salvation for the psalmist. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. That's a resounding denial of salvation for the psalmist. It doesn't come from the psalmist himself. The psalmist isn't saying there's no salvation for me in God. But rather, uh, he is telling us what many others in his nation uh, many others around him in his community, in his religious community, are saying about him or thinking about him. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. God will, or another translation of the uh, New Testament in English, uh, of the Old Testament in English says, God will not deliver him. Now, I've lived uh, long enough to have seen and heard this kind of attitude uh, displayed even by Christians, by members of the church, of various churches, uh, and even leaders within the church in Scotland in our own day, who've come to the same kind of conclusion regarding others, either because of open sin that they have committed, or very often because of rumors that they've heard and that they have believed, whether they have any reason for believing that or not, but they've believed it about others. And the cry has gone up, there's no salvation, no hope for him, no hope for her, no salvation for them. Maybe you've said that kind of thing of somebody else. Or if you haven't, maybe you've thought it. No hope for him, no hope for her. Speaking as if you had the mind of God, completely, and exclusive access to it, and the heart of God and the purposes of God. If you've ever thought these things or said these things, then you need to keep listening um, to the rest of the psalm and, and what the Lord is teaching us through the psalm. 
But perhaps you're here today, and more likely, these are the kinds of things that you're actually saying about yourself. There's no hope of salvation for me. Anyone in here who's ever had that thought go through their minds and hearts, maybe got it going through your mind or heart, no hope of salvation for me. God won't deliver me. God won't save me. And you'll have your reasons for saying that because of who I am, because of uh, the things I've done in my past life or even not so long ago because of the way of, uh, I've lived. And if that's where you're at today, then you too need to, uh, to listen what, to the message that's coming through the psalm. But in these opening two verses, we find this resounding denial of salvation for the psalmist. There's no salvation for him in God. And you notice the the extent of this conviction among the people of God. It's highlighted once again by repetition. Did you notice how often the word many uh, is used in these verses? Turns up three times. No less than three times. And that tells us, when anything turns up in the Scriptures twice, uh, it, it tells us something going on here. We need, to, we need to pay attention. When it turns up three times, we definitely need to, to, to pay attention. So the psalmist here is highlighting, he's, he's stressing, he's emphasizing the sheer size and magnitude of the hostile opposition that the psalmist was facing at this time. We see it in the opening verse. The psalmist cries out, and you can imagine that he's almost overwhelmed by by the size and vehemence and hostility of the opposition that he's experiencing from his fellow countrymen. Lord, how many are my foes? He's sinking under the the weight of it all, the, the, the multiplicity of it all. And again, in the same verse, he says, Many are rising against me. That's the kind of thing we read in 2 Samuel chapter 15. It's what made David flee. And yet again, we have it in the very next verse, in verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. It's as if the the waves and billows of uh, angry and hostile uh, opposition to the psalmist, they just come one after another. They're crashing relentlessly uh, on the shore of his heart, if you like, and his mind. And he actually picks it up again in verse 6 of the psalm, where he speaks more concretely this time of many Thousands of people, some of the translations of the Bible at that point put myriads of people, many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Although there, uh, in verse 6 in the psalm, the psalmist is actually in a better place to cope with such overwhelming opposition and hostility. So clearly, there was a rising tide of opposition, which is exactly what, uh, what we saw when we were reading there in 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 15 from the incident in, in the life of David. And the title of this psalm is, highlights that, when David fled from Absalom, his son. And there are a few 
uh, lines, if you like, uh, from 2 Samuel uh, 15 and, uh, for example, verse 6, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And we, we were reading there of some of the, the ways he went about that. He had his plans to steal the hearts uh, of the men of Israel. Verse 12 of the chapter, the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. How many there are, says the psalmist. Verse 13, a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. How fickle they were. How fickle were the hearts of the Israelites. This is David after all, the, the David who had saved them as a, a, a young lad when he had uh, overcome Goliath and the power of the Philistines. And how quickly all of that and, and the many other exploits that David had done uh, um, after becoming king, all of that had vanished from their minds and, and their allegiance had passed to his son Absalom. They knew, of course, that David was not perfect. David had sinned. David had, uh, um, had sinned outrageously in many ways. And yet they were, were fickle. And that kind of fickleness is demonstrated again and again in the Bible, uh, but particularly when we come into the New Testament in the closing week of the life of King David's greater descendant, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. You remember his triumphal entry into Jerusalem? And all the people were out and they were celebrating as he entered in uh, on this symbolically on a donkey, uh, the donkey on which uh, the king rides a triumphant coming back home from battle. And the crowds that surrounded him were crying, Hosanna to the son of David, the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Praise be to God for this man, Jesus. Within a week, having been influenced and persuaded by the religious leaders, it's all on its head. And they choose to release the serious criminal, the notorious criminal Barabbas, rather than Jesus. And as if, as if that's not enough, when Pilate asks, what will I do with Jesus? They bade for his blood. You know, like these crowds of demonstrators that we see nowadays. And they're shouting, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. From Hosanna to let him be crucified in less than a week. The hearts of the people of Jerusalem have been turned. And these are not the only parallels between the experience of Christ and uh, the, this experience of the psalmist here. When you go home, uh, if you've got a spare time uh, in the afternoon, read again the reports of the crucifixion of Jesus uh, and see how often the question of salvation comes up from all quarters. The salvation of Jesus comes up from all quarters. 
Uh, in Luke's gospel, for example, we read the, uh, the rulers were, were crying out, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, if he is the chosen one of God. And then the soldiers, we read, also mocked him, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Let's see salvation in your experience, Jesus. And as he was nailed to the cross, uh, the ordinary people cried out, um, let's see, let's see if God will actually come and save him. That will show us if he's, if he's a real man of God, if he is what he's saying. Let's see if God saves him. And one of the criminals uh, beside him asked, are you not the Christ? Can you not save yourself and, and us as well? What a diverse crowd of people, uh, significant, divergent groups in, in, in Jewish society, and they've all got the same message about salvation. There is no hope of salvation for this man, Jesus Christ. You've got the Jewish religious leadership. You've got the ordinary synagogue-going Jewish people. You've got the Gentile Roman occupation forces. You've got the nation's criminal fraternity. And when all of these people in society have the one message, then you know there's something far wrong. But their message was, there's no salvation for him in God. We're doing the right thing. Get rid of Jesus from our lives. Sadly, it's not the last time that religious people and even religious leaders and even Christian leaders have sided with the powers of darkness. How careful those of us in um, Christian leadership need to be, and the rest of us as well, lest we find ourselves in the same position. That's, that's the opening two verses then, setting the scene for us, the resounding denial of salvation for the psalmist. And then immediately we have the actual reality of the psalmist's experience of God in the midst of this battlefield that he's experiencing, in the midst of all this overwhelming opposition from verse 3 to verse 6. And it begins with the words, but you, O Lord. And at one level, what the psalmist is saying there is, you, Lord, are so different from these many, many, many different types of people who have the same message for me. You're my hope. The psalmist continues to be a man of prayer. The world around him, the religious people around him, the whole people, uh, the majority of the people in the land around him think that there's no hope for him, no salvation for this man. And he's actually in the place of prayer. He's in the place of prayer. But the other thing is that uh, in Hebrew, the word you at this point, it's an emphatic word. 
Uh, and the psalmist is stressing that the Lord, his Lord, his God, you are so different from them. From these hordes, from these many people, from these myriads of God's people rising up against him. And he begins to list some of the ways in which God is so different from them. You are a shield about me. They are spears in my side. They are functioning like swords. But you are a shield. Lord, you are a shield about me. He recognizes that the Lord is his protector, his only protector, really, in that situation. And not just like a soldier's uh, shield, as it were, protecting him from the front, and maybe as he swings uh, his arm around a bit from the side as well, but about him, offering him complete protection, 360-degree protection, total protection. You're my shield before me, behind me, beside me, on each side, above me, beneath me. And of course, that was nothing new. It wasn't a new truth for the people of God. It goes right back to the beginning, to Abraham. You remember when the covenant-making God in Genesis chapter 15, the, the covenant-keeping God made that promise to Abraham, the father of all who believe when he entered into that covenant relationship with Abraham, and not just with Abraham, but with every uh, generation of the, the spiritual seed of Abraham from that point onwards down to our own day until the end comes. You remember his words to Abraham, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. And the psalmist is picking that up. Lord, you are my shield about me. He's not afraid, as we see in verse 6, even of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around, he says, because you are my shield. Do you have the God of Abraham? The God of David? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as your shield about you, quenching all the fiery darts of the evil one and those who work for him. Whether these come from unbelievers or even from believers, from Christians, it's a shield about me. But that's not all he has to say about his God. He's my glory. Or as he says to God, you are my glory. The rest of the people thought God was his judge. God was the one who was condemning him. But the psalmist saw God as his glory. You are my glory. I wonder today what your glory is. 
What's the thing that you rely on for honor or value or worth among the mates? What do you want to be known for? What, do you, what are you known for? Maybe classmates, college mates, our workmates, even our peers in church or in the wider community. What's your glory? It's your academic achievements, sporting prowess, your beauty, your physique, or some other transient passing theme? Or, or here, can you truly say uh, with the psalmist that it's God, Jesus Christ is your glory? But you, O oh Lord, you're my glory. Remember the advice of the prophet Jeremiah to God's people in his day in Jeremiah chapter 9. <clears throat> Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the mighty man boast in his might or his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Plenty of those across the world today who are seeking leadership in nations and that's what they glory in. And we could, we could add to the, uh, the list that the prophet was writing out there. The other things, the other people that we, we glory in. But the Lord goes on, but let him who boasts or glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Do you understand God, at least in a little measure? Do you know God? Do you know Jesus Christ? That he knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love. Do you know the steadfast, steadfast, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, love of the Lord Jesus Christ? and so on. Do you know Jesus personally? Do you know what he's like? You come to appreciate something of the character of Jesus, the love of Jesus Christ, the justice of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ. Is Christ your glory? Because all the rest fades. And we know it fades as we see generation after generation uh, fading away. And the prophet Isaiah spoke of that uh, so long ago in Isaiah chapter 40. All flesh is grass. That's you and me. If you've got a garden, you'll see the grass growing and you'll see the flowers growing. And last week we had some wonderful plants in the garden and Today, as I look out, they're all withered. Not all of them, but some of them have withered. They're past their best. All flesh is like that. All flesh is grass. All its glory, its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. Today, I'm grass. I'll soon be gone. 
your grass and its glory will soon be gone. As one of the, some of you might know one of the old gospel hymns, Fairest flowers soon decay, youth and beauty pass away. You have not long to stay, be in time. While God's Spirit bids you come, sinner, do not longer roam, lest you seal your helpless doom. Be in time. If God is your glory today, as he was for the psalmist here, we need to know that it's a glory that will never pass away, it will never fade. In fact, it's a glory that will only become most visible in that end moment when the eternal beginning starts. The one that John was privileged, the Apostle John was privileged to see in, in a variety of visions in the book of Revelation where he was on the island of Patmos, exiled there, cut off from his people, cut off from everything, but not cut off from God who revealed half of heaven to him, as it were. And one of the things that he saw was the bride of Christ at last, the church of Jesus Christ at last. And you know how he describes the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. You are my glory. Is that your hope? Or is your glory still something that's just going to pass away? That, of course, uh, what John was seeing was the fulfillment of that great Glorious chain of salvation spoken of by Paul in Romans chapter 8, now accomplished, predestined, called, justified, glorified. It's true of every Christian. When you hear God calling you, you're in that chain if you respond to that call. It's true. A shield about me, my glory, and thirdly, the lifter up of my head. Some of you will be at the same stage of life as uh, my wife and I are at uh, at the moment, that wonderful stage in which we have uh, the grandkids coming to us uh, for a sleepover from time to time. Um, it's a great stage as long as they don't stay with us too long <clears throat> because it gets uh, rather exhausting them. But uh, ours are still um, in primary school, or, or not one of them not yet gone to school. Three of them are at that ten, what I would call the tender stage of childhood, where you can easily tell if what they've done is something when they've done something wrong. And you'll know this from your own experience. They just can't hide it. Can't hide it at all. You come to them. You approach them. Sometimes you don't even have to speak to them. The head goes down, the face falls, they can't look you in the eye. And one of them is still so sensitive in spirit, he just begins to cry. And you may have grandkids like that. 
But how wonderful it is when they accept the word of chastisement or correction and they say sorry and you're ready to embrace them again warmly and unconditionally. The head is lifted, the eyes look at you, the face shines again, the smile comes on the face, they run towards you, they embrace you. And you, as you embrace uh, them, we're one again. No barrier of sin between us. And it's the same with our relationship with God. He's the one we have sinned against. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, says the psalmist. David himself in Psalm 51 and that's exactly why you may be running from God today. It's why we run from God. We don't want to look God in the eye. We don't want to face, we don't want to look Jesus in the eye. We can't look Jesus in the eye. And some people run all their lives. But they will look Jesus in the face. Every one of us will. Before the judgment seat of Christ. Will your head be lifted high that day? Christ as the lifter of your head? A shield about me. He's my glory. He's the lifter of my head. He's the peace giver in the storms of life. Verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Just reminds me of Jesus in the boat, the Sea of Galilee, in the storm, at one with the Father. Knew he didn't have to worry. After my cardiac arrest, for three and a half, almost four years ago now, um, when I came around in the ambulance, um, it was a thought for me to fall asleep the first night or two in hospital. Would my ticker keep going? Of course, I had to learn that uh, the Lord who looked after me through the cardiac arrest would be the same for me every day until that final day when he would take me home. So there is something thankful for every one of us every day when we wake up. We do that because the Lord has sustained us. Each of us, we woke up this morning because God sustained us in life. But for every one of us, there's coming a final time in this life um, when we will lie down and fall asleep in death. 
but every single one of us will waken again. Every one of us. True of those who think that death is the end as well. They will waken again on the morning of the resurrection. When the Christ who has already risen returns to the world in power and glory. I want you to think about what that morning will hold for you. Eternal life or eternal death. Life at best is very brief. Like the falling of a leaf. Like the binding of a sheaf. Be in time. Fleeting days are telling fast that the, the die will soon be cast. For some of us it comes much earlier than for others. And the fatal line be passed. Be in time. And the best way to be in time is today. Is the day of salvation. Close in with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you upheld the psalmist. When no one else thought he had any hope, 